This is Robin Haddon, and you are listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. When the chains around me no longer ground me and my soul can sail Unspoken Finally have their say Then we'll all sing out That'll be the day Oh, that'll be the day Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the David Cassidy Connections podcast. I am your host, Louise Poynton. And you've just been listening to my guest today, musician and songwriter Jim Stevens. Jim puts his own identity on Partridge Family songs. And in recent years, he's been on a journey of self-discovery through his songwriting and music production. It's well worth checking out his YouTube channel to listen to his Be Do and Connective Energies albums. We will hear more about his music and specifically David's influence in his life during our conversation, where we also talk about the pressures of fame, how rock music has changed through the decades. And Jim also explains that when you discover who you want to be and what you want to do, how the pieces in life's jigsaw puzzle fall into place. But we started by talking about his first influence, the Beatles, and how he came to be part of a cover band. Hello, Jim, and welcome to the show. Hello, Louise. So I mentioned just now in the intro about the importance of the Beatles' music in your life and that you were in a Beatles cover band. Tell me how that came about. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, Beatles were the first. You know, when I was a little kid, my parents had their records laying around, the later ones they were buying at that time in the late 60s. And um, as a little teeny kid, I just, I was into all music, a lot of the 50s stuff, which is why one reason why I love the the Rascals and that stuff so much, because there was that was kind of a tie back there too. Um, but I became addicted to Beatles. And, you know, if, if I was going to do three musical influence i mean everything is a musical influence to me but the three biggest ironically the beatles are not in them even though they were the foundation for everything would be queen kiss and elton john um as far as the biggies you know all like one two and three but beatles are in a way you can say they're almost above that you know so they 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 do it you know i'm sure every single person that you chat with and everyone i talk to any age really um, it's Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. And Zeppelin always comes up too. I mean, we have a big Zeppelin freak as well. But the Beatles were the shiz, as they say, and just were always in and out of everything. And I listen, I'm a McCartney freak too. I mean, really, and, and Ringo was the most, one of the most, if not the most underrated drummer ever, but that's a whole other story. But the Beatles thing came to be, well, kind of fit into things very strangely. I think that started in 20, the end of 2012. Um, and I had done the Be Do thing. I put the Be Do record out and I wanted to start the Connective Energies thing. And a guy through a guy that I knew just said, hey, do you want to, you know, we need a singer. 
And um, they were based in Jersey, in New Jersey, because I'm in Philly. You know, I had to drive to Jersey to rehearse all the time. And it was it was kind of shaky at the beginning. And the more we did it, we did it over a period of three years. And I was doing, I would say, 96% of the lead vocals. That was the really fun part for me. Because as you know, we all know, the Beatles stuff is always changing, never the same. All four people did their thing and put a stamp on it in you know in one way shape or form and so not only were the songs varied but the you know the vocal styles were varied too so you know there's that thing in all of us where we imitate all especially people who sing even if it's just for fun you know or whatever it's you imitate you subconscious and you do it so it was kind of fun you know and it just became really cool and over time you know a few people came and left and by the time it it had run its course and it kind of had to break up um but it was a great experience all around I and mean, literally no complaints about the thing you know most of those songs especially after 66 let's say were, were rarely if ever played probably never you know if you most of them except the rooftop thing and stuff like that they never really had a chance to go out after that 66 tour and you know play so in a way any band or anybody that covers beatles no one can tell you it's wrong Let's put it that way. They might not like it, but they can't tell you it's wrong. But the cool part was, is we ended up with five people in it. We usually had four, four, one or two times, but five people in general. Um, so we could do pretty much any track. But the question is, how do you arrange it? And finally, the last group of people that we had for the last year and a half or so started gelling and arranging stuff that sounded totally like us. But we didn't take it too far so that people who are really hardcore Beatle fans would go like, what the hell is that? You know, so and that and it seemed to be working. And as a matter of fact, a friend of mine who I did the um, the Bee-Do record with in 2007 has become friends with uh, Phil Niccolo, who is, is friends with Yoko and has done a lot of the re reissuing projects with her and all this kind of stuff. And Phil's like a legendary producer in the Philly, him and his brother, Joe. So the point being is at the very end of the Beatles band run, we did it one of the last shows, I think it was next to last show, and Phil and his wife came. Michael, my friend, brought Phil and his wife. And they sat there through two hours and 20 minutes of Beatles stuff. And all it needed to tell me about whether we were on a good track or not was watching, Fit when I would look down here and there, I could see Phil's, and Phil was just kind of sitting there with a like, nice little smile and grin on his face. And his wife was just doing kind of the same. Mm. and But they sat there attentive through the entire thing. And when we were done, I talked to him quickly. And his his wife was just, oh, just beautiful. And Phil, and Phil who's a very mild-mannered dude, a good dude, was like, oh, it was great. It was wonderful. That's all I needed to know. You know, everything emanates to and from and to the Beatles again. It just does. It was never not worth it. It was so fun. Did you always want to sing and entertain? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was singing from the time I was a kid. I, But I, I was just winging it, you know, till I, I met uh, in the 80s, a guy named Frank Capelli, who was an opera star in the, I believe, the 40s. Um, I got introduced to him through Mike again, ironically, who had gone to him for some sessions for some singing teaching. And I'd gone to four or five singing teachers at that point. They'd all helped me here and there, but none of them had really passed on the physicality of it to me the real deal like how to do it and physically do it so that you can sing three hours every night for your whole life if you want and if you can hear yourself you know 
never ruin your voice. And I worked with him for two years and, and he changed everything. But I was always recording myself, you know, in, in like college and before that, right before that and stuff and singing with the thing here or there. But, you know, my range was good. But mm -hmm. until I got together with Frank over those two years and he he put me on autopilot, you know, with I mean, I had to do it and go through the two years. But he was able to really, really, really. And I do some singing teaching now, you know, and, and take the gist of what he gave me and did so so yes always sing but that the ham factor as i call it that's not a bad thing because the ham factor is you got to have that you know to be kind of a ham and get on stage and talk with the people and Absolutely. chill with them and stuff like that and and enjoy it and and i i guess i had some enough of that to make mm -hmm. it worthwhile but you know until i connected with really connected with me hardcore and and real and truth and stuff like that which is only 2007 the be do record it changed yeah it just changed yes. into a different thing and that's where the positivity thing that you and i have talked about before was right there for me to see make that the, the main core of everything that i did singing wise because now that i can do it on autopilot physically mm. but the rest has got to come from here you know well it's interesting you say that because i found the be do album extremely interesting ah. a, I, I interpreted it this way that there is a spiritual lesson mm -hmm. in learning when to do and when to be and le learning to yeah. be is a yeah, very it's... personal development aim you are so correct it's totally personal and everybody has their different series of events that hits them and leads them to that maybe one moment where it becomes easy to access the personal or, you know, delve into it further. But when it happens, it's amazing. And that's like I said, when that record was done, I was really just starting to live it all for the first time. So literally the only thing I would ever say in my life that I felt was channeled after the fact and say, where did this come from? Literally. I mean, that's a fact. All I really wanted to do just day in, day out is, yeah, being is the simplest thing, but you got to get there because you can just decide to be it's that choice you know what I mean? but again like, until you you see that that can happen for yourself whoever you are you don't know that that's the case it's real easy but it's hard getting there and then it's practice like anything else did you find that putting be do together was almost like writing a letter to yourself oh yes oh yes i mean literally but the the process of the, of that becoming a record like i said changed and it started in a series of events led me to be literally standing on the corner of a street of a starbucks in the winter no one around saying okay dude okay this every you everyone we all need each other but without you pushing the engine and and being the starter of the engine ultimately it's, it's that weird irony that di weird dichotomy like yeah you know i don't need anybody but i need everybody and vice versa you know what I mean? And I was like, okay, if I'm going to be music again, and I hadn't been music, that was the only time where I really didn't think much about music was, I guess, from right around late 90s, 2000 to about 2007. I mean, I really wasn't even singing much, listening all the time, of course, to everything new, but not singing. And so I'm like, yeah, dude, if, if you're ever going to be the music again, you better, it's up to you. And so I gotten Mike to do the record and the rest and it was going to be three songs how it how it turned from three songs into a record 
and what I was doing at that time too was incredible. Even with all the stuff with my folks, which you kind of know about, you know, and the taking care of them for so long and that having to be my main thing. I've been singing here and there in public, but mostly I had no time for that. But the one thing that's been happening, being and positivity and creating music and recording it and releasing it at least and bringing a lot of the connections, like the, the connectivity of connective energies, that record. So at least I was creating and putting stuff out and connecting to the music. I get the feeling from what you're saying is that doing Be Do, it became the seat of your intuition and psychic ability. In a way, yeah, yeah. Because of the way I, I know you, that you use your intuition, mm -hmm. somewhat illustrated on the album cover, you're holding your intuition in the palm of your hand. Yeah. Your intuition I mean is your third eye. Right, you know, it's your knowing. It's one of the things that you, because there's there's knowing and thinking and belie or believing and hoping, but knowing's yeah. a whole other thing. Like straight up, no nonsense, knowing. Yeah. And again, when you tap into that, whoever you are, which we all will at some point, it's just a question of when. Yeah, it's incredible how clear it becomes. You know, it was those, during the series of events in 2005, you know, again, no reason to talk about those, but those series, that series of events during that, that all culminated and the energy from that finally, bam. And then again, all the little angels, you know, that you've been dealing with for the few years before and some 10, 15 years before, and they all end up then pushing you forward and you'll see the parts that they play. You see the, And I still look back at that time at letting everything you do flow from your states of being. And it's the perfect marriage of mind, spirit, and body. You know what I mean? Once you're, I was living that, that being and doing, everything in that record, that's why it was channeled by, I know, not believe, <laughs> that because I was, I had gotten there and was living it. And it just kind of, boom, all these forces came together. And there it was, if you wanted to read the lyrics or listen to the thing. But that's what I was living. <clears throat> and it's the first time they say it's the truest thing you know, how everything just flows. Like literally life becomes effortless, but you almost are not paying attention to the fact that it's become effortless. I think there's a line in that song, in the song Be Do, I think is when you choose to just be, all of life flows. And once I got there, it was like, positivity is a good thing, man. Connectivities. I mean, I knew all these things and you, I think we all inherently know all these things, but it's a question of when you get kind of slapped by whatever's going on and you kind of wake up to whatever it is and you know it's like old like be you want to go to beatles songs a lot of the early partridge songs these kind of things you know when you're a kid half of it you don't get lyrically i always liked lyrics but i didn't listen to them first it was always melodies right. you know things like that and the music and how it all worked together and, and it's ironic those partridge songs especially uh somebody wants to love you the newest one that i just did those are all songs and even that'll be the day. Oh, that was the most dramatic musically. You know, I love, I've loved that song since I was a little kid. Oh, by the way, She'd Rather Have the Rain. That's another rain song that is just, that's my favorite Partridge Family Rain song. Anyway, but the lyrics to those songs to That'll Be the Day, uh, Somebody Wants to Love You, and I'll Meet You Halfway, especially the lyric. Yes. That's where I, that's, I, you know, I'm so connected to all that now. Whereas when I grew up with it, I loved it all, but I really, really didn't connect. Yeah. And that's one of the cool things about the Partridge tracks. 
so many of them even put into the show the way they were put into the show and the way if you look at the show and the actual kind of humor and this and that there was some deep stuff and really cool now you know especially late 60s early 70s and in general in music and art you know it's always like peace we are all one you know all this kind of stuff together you know we're all connected which is true but it's amazing to me how the songs from the partridge family I mean, you monkeys, yes, a lot of those shows that were around at that time, there's some in there that are of this ilk, but to, if I'm not mistaken, which I could be, to me, there were so many more on the Partridge family, you know, and some that weren't even on the show, probably, and on the records. I mean, there's so many of them, and um, it's just really cool, and so with music, that's, and life in general, now that my marathon is over, knock on wood, very lightly, <laughs> I, I hopefully I can actually be singing this stuff live again and really using the music in a human form because I'll tell you something I was always okay in front of a crowd or whatever you know I could always sing but after Bidu and after living that way in that zone for two years and seeing what it was all about connection with a crowd for me became effortless you know, I write melodies, I sing, and I can write songs here and there, but, you know, surround yourself with people that are geniuses and all that other stuff. But my thing, even more than I ever really knew, was and is connection with people, you know, whoever the hell they are. And, and they, it just that's what it's all about. And you don't need, you know, don't need to go all over the place to do that necessarily people love that and their eyes will open but still it's funny that all these years later i'm i'm partridge familying up again i've always kept listening to this stuff and singing this stuff but i mean I, people have started looking at me a little sideways i think i was telling you this a while ago little sideways like another partridge family cover another partridge family cover what's your deal you know and i'm like yeah. i don't know well and as a matter of fact that'll be the day um who was I talking to the other day? We were talking about that track. Oh, no, it was my friend, Sarah, who was in that session in the room upstairs in the barn where that was recorded, but she wasn't singing. My other friend, Christina, who was background vocals on Somebody Wants to Love You, the three of us are like, we call ourselves a breakup club, but Sarah was in that room and she goes, oh my God, I love that song. I, I can't get, get enough yeah. of that. And I'm like, I, I know. It's like, actually, I hadn't heard it for quite some time. I mean, the version that I did. And I'm like, it's, it's incredible. The song is incredible. I mean, yeah, I changed a few lyrics here and there. Now, when you decided to do the covers of the Partridge Family songs, those mm -hmm. songs are so set in our psyche. When you come to give it the Jim Stevens version, <laughs> stamp, stamp your voice on it. Right. How do you come up with changing it that'll be the day has got a your version has got a very mm. strong gospel feel to it was that an intentional move or did it just <clears throat> evolve? yeah 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 well there, there's two things there's an irony there the irony is there it's whatever the jim stevens stamp is i guess really doesn't it matters but not that much because it's where the song is and what it says to me that's what takes it to wherever it's going to go you, you know what I mean? Like I'm almost, sometimes I don't even know, but with, for for example, that'll be the day we definitely wanted to, and me may, wanted to shake it up. 
And the guy I was working with, Derek, who produced the record, great, great dude, a genius, play everything, sing everything, you know, writes great stuff. He heard what I heard, which was, let's raucous it up a little bit. You know what I mean? But if you'll notice, I changed the lyrics in the bridge there, you know, like half the lyrics, just, just again, to update it. Because, you know, what they were writing for for the show, as we know, is, you know, the sand and the sea, the rocks and the sunshine, go to, you know, the grass on the summer ground, the leaves of the sheep in the meadow. That's cool, but that's they, those lyrics were perfect for what they were doing then and for the show. And I was just like, then I try to update it a little bit, make it a little more be-do, because it's pretty damn be-do already lyrically, you know? But we definitely wanted to make that louder. And so that's where, like, we got one of the, one of the best, and he's still doing it, one of the most renowned metal drummers in the world to play drums on that. The thing that's great about it is, and this was Derek's idea for Johnny, the drummer, he was like, uh, we want Keith Moon, late 60s Who, going to the edge but not falling over it. Right. And that's exactly what the drums are doing in that song. So the, that the music and the coins, that was all inherent there. In, so we just pulled it out, so to speak. Yeah. But once it got raucous, did the, the whole choir thing and church thing, oh, yeah. that Because at the time, I was just off and still doing the, the Germantown thing and the church in Germantown. Uh, we were doing stuff on and off there. Um, and I loved that place. And I always envisioned doing it there. I could see the, 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 the stained glass windows. And, you know, I kind of envisioned us doing it in that church. So we, I got I was like eight or ten of really good friends of all different ilks. Uh, some musicians, some not, some singing. And we just brought them all in to the barn, the second floor of the barn. That's the studio that Derek worked at before he moved. It's still the name of the studio, I guess. But, and we just cranked it out. And they all sang live. So all those vocals, you know, in the chorus of that are that people singing as a choir. I was in it too. And, you know, singing as a choir, that was the effect, one, you know, we were going for. And I'm glad that you that you hear that and feel it. I mean, it, granted, it does kind of sound like that. But some people, it goes by, you know. And so when the thing was done, I was like, when that record came out in 2017, by the way, Friends of mine all over the place, tons that work at Starbucks, tons that work all ages. That because I kind of put it out as a single first. It's really all I could do, time wise. But I put it out there first because it was one of the first things I said. The mix is done. Let's get it out there. And to this day, I ran into a guy uh, named Chris two weeks ago. hadn't seen him for four years, and he was one of the ones who would go around singing. That'll be the day. You know, he's like 26 now. You know what I mean? And he, they don't know it from the Partridge family. Yeah, so there's that. With I'll Meet You Halfway, I just happened onto a almost an almost perfect karaoke version for a backing track. So I was able to just, bam, gave it to Derek. You know, I paid my two twenty five for it, $2.25 $2. for the karaoke rights, downloaded it. But the, the lyric was what was getting me. And the lyric was was crushing me. All of us, like, see, again, I've heard I'll Meet You Halfway a hundred thousand times. I'm exaggerating, but a lot. Never thought to do it. And I and I I, I saw and heard the song again one day, I don't know, after all the time of hearing it, and it was like, man, that's that is so dead on. Lyrically and vibe and just it's just so dead on. You know, I'll meet you halfway is very with a solid karaoke track like the original. 
I mean, even the strings on that, they got to sound pretty good. And it worked. And I had people, again, in their 20s and 30s who never knew who the hell the Partridge family were yeah. saying, wow. wants to love you what a great freaking sentiment i mean that's me coming out of this nine years or whatever of on call you can record when you can but that's it forget music just time at, or you know job at hand so to speak i'm connecting to all these partridge family songs along the way and then now just super recently you know oh what somebody wants to love you that's perfect for like get back out into the world get back the, the backlog of singles so to speak that I'm, I'm doing now and starting now are all in this vein. This, I mean, it's not like I'm never going to do a song, a Bidoo type song lyrically again. I'm going to do a bunch that aren't like that, but mostly 
it's this kind of stuff. It's the it's the connectivity is just uh, the connect, connectivity level is incredible in these songs. As a matter of fact, Beatles, a great example, a great example of lyric and whether you pay attention to not or pay attention to it or not, whoever you are, let it be great melody, great song. And people remember the words, let it be right. I went through two thirds of my life, not really, 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 really getting that. There's a first United Methodist Church of Germantown where a friend of mine brought me to join with this group. It was like they wanted to bring a younger vibe and sound into the thing and do it live and do it. You know, it's a great old Methodist church. Like it's an all all inclusive, the whole thing. We did lots of Beatles stuff there. And it was there that I really got back to let the song let it be. And I actually did that track with the band backing me up in the church once. I, I end up telling people these days, just and myself included, who were like, what do I do? Where do I go? How do, how do I handle this? Well, I got so much, just, just chill, man, forget it, let it be. Come back to it. It'll work itself out with you. It'll work. But I never did. I ever think of Let It Be, the Beatles song, as that. No, not when I was a kid. It's incredible stuff. I mean, it's like really, really nuts. Oh, my God. I could go on forever about that kind of stuff. (laughs) And then there's the new one. Then there's Somebody Wants to Love You. A track you told me about some months ago. So you've been working on it. And every few weeks you'd say, I'm nearly there. We've laid down the backing tracks. We're nearly there. We've just got to do. Oh this. yeah, COVID got in the way. I was getting so yeah. anxious to hear it, and every time <laughs> I got a message from you, it was like, "Oh well, well I'm not quite ready. Just give me another week." <laughs> it's fabulous. All these things that get started, and then something would usually the folk scene would you know would stop it. That's fine. Just two friends doing the backing vocals two days before that, and then we could have mixed it. Then I got the COVID and I kind of needed to be there for that session. So I couldn't do it. And um, so we had to put it off. And that track was another, like as an album that you halfway was, I was hoping to reemerge, so to speak, onto the scene with I'll Meet You Halfway, yes. reintroductory track. And then my mom passed not long after. So that that's shelved all that reemergence. So after all the stuff that went down with my mom passing in the house, and like I told you that life-changing stuff, once I got settled, that was the day I heard, and I it doesn't come up much in my playlist because it's in the back of it, my Partridge playlist, and I hear Somebody Wants to Love You, and I'm like, you know, probably I'd put it 30th or 40th on my list of Partridge tracks, and I was like, I have to do that. I, that, I have to do that. That's that's my new, re, my re-re-re-emergence track, right? I think I had said this to you at some point. Derek said, I know that track. I have the album. I get it. Let's do it. But with that one, it was kind of a combination of that'll be the day and I'll meet you halfway. It was like, I want to modern it up a little, but not tons, tons, tons. Keep the Partridge vibe in there, but change it some and make it a live band though. You know, totally live. The combination of the bombast of the version of uh, that'll be the day that I did and the sweetness of I'll meet you halfway and kind of mix them up. I don't know how sweet it turned out, but it's, you know, the thing is, it, I, it did what, and it organically came together. Just the story of that one little song yes. and, and how, who's on it and how it came together and how once we decided to go for it, it was like a, a microcosm of this whole last 15 years for me. All of the stuff that you would never think 
just like in life. That's why you let it flow and you let it be and you go it one day at a time. And all these cool things start happening. It's all other people along with you. And then when it's done, you're like, wow, that was pretty cool. That was fun. And it had something to do with you, but how much? From here on out, all of these songs from the last five, six years, especially, but even some Bidu songs, I want to get out there and start playing. Um, but all these songs are going to be coming out in some way, shape or form. I, it's a, not just these, but more, uh, not just Partridge stuff, but other stuff that I'm going to be doing, uh, like original stuff, covers, collaborations, all the, you know, one at a time, though, no albums. Can you tell us about the musicians that you pulled together to record Somebody Wants to Love You? Um, yeah, you had some pretty key musicians involved there, didn't you? When we first, when Derek and I decided we were going to do that track, like I said, I, I knew it had to be real people all the way. Not not one thing fake. So we talked about it. And then we brought the first two guys in who, this is a strange way to record a song. Uh, it was the drummer and the keyboard player. Uh, a guy named Kenny Kearns on keys. Great dude, great keyboard player. Uh, especially if you're talking like, the 60s and 70s sounds like really really good um and eric johnson is a drummer uh, he's been around philly forever plays with everybody um and he was in a a band in high school with a guy named conrad korsh who is in new york but i was in a band with conrad back in the day for a year maybe it lasted and he recorded some stuff with us back then there's a band called royal jive He's one of my favorite bass players, you know, playing in a, in a band with the guy for that long. He's played with a lot of people, but he ended up becoming Rod Stewart's bass player for about 14, 15 years. And he left in 2018. I think he was a musical director for Stewart for like the last year and a half. But he's still up in New York. He played on a couple of tracks on Connect, my Connective Energies record. But he was in the band in high school with Eric, Eric Johnson, the drummer. And the funny part was, Derek and I decided and knew right away that Eric, the drummer, and Kenny, the keyboard player, that was a short thing. Those guys we really wanted. We hadn't thought about bass and guitar all the way yet. We kind of had ideas. So those guys came in. Those Neither one of those dudes knew the song, which I think is interesting. The, Kenny, the, the keyboard player, and Eric, the drummer. Yet they listened to it a couple times, the original version, the Partridge version. We kind of talked about what we wanted to do 40 minutes they laid it down no bass no guitar no nothing me standing there doing my stupid scratch vocal <clears throat> you know over and over which is fine and that was the only real thing that they had as a guide i knew i didn't want to fade like the original at the end at least not that fast they started playing it ran through it a few times 40 minutes done and eric had thought of this thing to do at the end this jam kind of sounds like 10 cc combined with stuff that's going on from the late 60s and so then i asked derek okay well that was that went well that went fast and they had a great we had a great session it was super fun great song and you know they instantly got sucked into the song those two dudes the first two guys and then i said well who do you want they rolled and i was talking with derek he said okay so who do you want for bass and he suggested conrad and i'm like you know that's kind of where i was thinking and that doesn't Conrad's fantastic, but again, this is no matter how good or whatever somebody is, it's all who's going to fit the song right. I called Conrad and I just said, you know, Paul McCartney, that's what we want. We want the silent killer in this, you know, that that Paul McCartney bass from the early Beatles period. And he probably spent an hour or two on it. 
sent us the track. But I told him, I said, you're going to be playing with Eric again. But they have an innate thing. And when I was recording the tracks in New York with him for Connective that he did, a couple of songs, one of them Eric played drums on and the other one a different drummer played. And I'll never forget it. Me and Conrad were sitting there laying down the stuff and going back and forth over the thing. And he goes, interesting. He goes, you notice how I just kind of clicked in and grooved in with Eric faster? I said, yeah, actually, that's... I just thought that was really cool because after all those years, all you had to hear was, do was hear Eric's playing and mess with it. And he just got it. He got it. He did it. He used the McCartney pick in the in the verses. And, and it's still Conrad. And it flows. And it, the original version of Somebody Wants to Love You is very keyboard oriented. It's strange because there's guitar in there, but the guitar does not run the song. And so we wanted to bring a little bit of that back. And actually... The guitar, then there was a guy, Dave Lennitz, the guy who does the guitar, who did almost all the guitar, electric, especially on Connective Energies. In my opinion, the guitar album of 2017, and I can say that because I didn't play any of the guitar. Incredible. The guy's just incredible. But we brought him in to do the guitar. You know, since Conrad, Eric, and Kenny had knocked it so out of the park, we could hear and feel the vibe. It was going right where we wanted. A little something new at the end, but not. And a little heavier, but still the vibe. So we did Let It Be. Speaking of Let It Be again, Derek heard this and thought, he goes, yeah, maybe we should just do gang, gang, you know, a little more, a little more guitar, run it. It's a fine line because you don't want to make it a guitar track. But I think we got the right middle ground. Yeah. And so it's got that, let, that studio version of Let It Be chunk in it on guitar. And then for the vocals... I went in, did a session, laid all the backgrounds down and the leads, but there were two friends that I wanted to bring in. Um, one was my friend Christina, who sang in that choir on That'll Be The Day and Connective Energies. So she's got two Partridge tracks under her belt. And then a friend of mine who I'm working with doing some singing teaching named Matt. He's got the same kind of tone as I do in general in the same range. And I've been working with him for just under a year. So I kind of know his voice really well. And I'm like, dude, this will be perfect because I want a female in there because we want partridge. You know, we want enough of that partridge in there, um, but we don't want to do the exact same vocal arrangement that they might have done. And so Christina covered the female parts, but Matt did some falsetto and he did the second verse in here. That's all Matt in his higher chest voice and Christina. Like that's not me at all. And it worked. I knew their tones would fit. And once they finally laid it all down, it was like, wow. And the mix was kind of interesting. It took a little bit, maybe three run-throughs, four run-throughs, but it was, because it was tricky. There's a lot going on in there, actually. Mm. And, but I, I mean, when it was all said and done, I was pretty happy with it. Most people that have heard it so far are pretty happy. So I think it's a nice mix. It's going to be weird to see whatever Partridge track I do next. Yes. Because it's going to yes. be... What the hell am I going to do with that? Because this one was the perfect mix of the first two. Yeah. So where the hell, where do I go with the, the next one? Who knows? It depends on the song. And, and then I heard from you that you knew Mike after I had told you that was a song that I was going to yes. do, which I thought was like, huh? <laughs> you know, and, and then you, and, you, and he'd been on the podcast and then I'm, so I listened to it and I was like, oh, wow. What a trick. So how weird is it that you've got me telling you, oh, we're doing a new Partridge song. Because remember, we were playing that guess what it is thing. Yes. And uh, you guessed a few times. And 
I'm like, okay, I'll just tell you what it is. And then when I told you, you're like, oh, I just did a thing with Mike Appel and, you know, his connection to that track and talk about connective and David. I still love David Cassidy connections. That's right. It is David Cassidy connections. I mean, that's obviously what this is about for Louise and this show, which has become so cool and the book and all this. And that's literally like everything else. It's connectivity. It it's is. just this track is like a, a different version or a microcosm of the whole David Cassidy connections thing and just connectivity in general. And it never ceases to fascinate me how connectivity is it. Like home, there doesn't seem to be a friend when you're alone. People stare, you wonder if they care, so you turn your back on someone who love to share. Try to see, it's gotta be loving one another is the only possibility. So when you're down and losing ground, don't get to thinking love can't be found. Hey, stop, stop, and look around. Somebody wants to love you. Stop, stop, and turn around. Somebody wants to love.
another interesting album of yours is Get Groovy. Did you check that out? Have you checked enough I of did. that out? I it's, have. I have. It's a couple of things what, on... what are your thoughts on that? This might not be well, the exact place to ask you that, but I'm curious. What I like about it is that your voice is so different on every single track. Keep going. How many singers are there here? You've got Let's Go Crazy, wow. where the start, the opening chords, are very much like Paperback Writer. Aren't they, though? Isn't that a weird song? Did you realise that? The only other person who sings... Yeah, the only other person who sings on that album, and I insisted that, that we keep him on it in a couple of places, in, in Let's Go Play, is the reason I bring it up, is because, you know, the only time is now... That's Mike, who did Be Do With Me. Right. And him and I wrote this record, except for the, the one cover, the, the Erasure cover at the beginning. He does some backs here and there, but I said, no, 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 these demos are too killer. I said, your, your voice is staying here in a couple of places. But yeah, you're right. Mostly it's just me. And I'll tell you why that first statement fascinated me so much. So as you were saying. I wonder if it's because of your vocal training, the lyrics... I'm curious as to whether you perhaps wrote a lot of poetry when you were young, because Charge of the Universe sounds like a personal song. You know, I, it's funny. I didn't write the poetry. I didn't do that. It's really, it's, honestly, honestly, honestly. I mean, I've written a few things before Be Do. Yeah. But once that Be Do connection was made, that's after that, when I do write lyrics you know which is my one of my main things it either flows like a faucet and never turns off and then it might for two days but like there's a song he did on his last record which was four or five years ago conrad and it was called it's called give it all away and it's basically what you give comes back mm. and i heard his song conrad's song and i was like dude that's that's it i, I have to do a version of that so we're going to be doing that soon I loved his production. So this the Get Groovy was supposed to be done in two weeks. I wanted to record it with a band in two weeks and keep it super simple. Got the demos together, did it. Me and Mike, 60% of it was finished. So what we did uh, with, with that was, and the reason I say all this is because we're talking about the lyrics and when they flow or they don't flow. Get Groovy is probably 75, 80% my lyric. But if Michael gives me a song, it resonates. And, but he knows I'm going to change it. In about a day and a half period of time, the lyrics to Groovy and the lyrics, the actual song Groovy, and you got to make your own. Like, I don't know where they came from. And Michael said to me, what did you do? Under the duress you've been under, how did you? And I don't know. You know what I mean? It just, again, the universe brought it all together. So Groovy and you got to make your own were the first two tracks, that, demos that were done. Right. Two years later, by the time we were finishing everything up, uh, late last, late in 2021 and very early 2022. Here's the thing: you're, I'm, you blew me away. I've said this: the very strangest and yet coolest thing for an album that's called "Get Groovy," and this was not intended. And I noticed it when it was done. And your first observation is basically what I noticed. It's like in every single song, in general. I mean, I move around here and there. There's some where I, like the last song where I do a little more, you know, 80s metal, like yelping kind of thing or whatever, singing, but you know. But in general, my lead vocals and the vocals on that record, you're right, you're dead on. And this was not intended as a project before we started. 
for, they're done with each song in mind. And more than ever, they're very percussive. Like the vocals in so many of the songs are very percussive, following what the groove of that song was. It was semi-subconsciously intentional, I guess you could put it. Like I enjoy that record. I don't listen to my stuff tons, but so it's, I'm, it's so cool that you notice that. Well, I think also the standout track for me uh, is mm -hmm. more, to, more to You and Me. That's got a 1960s feel to it and okay. a little bit of, of part of the family production. Okay. I am so with you on that, but the song was so exactly what you say. Like the way you heard it is how we were hearing it. And more to you and me up until the very last second did not fit sonically with it because you know how different it is and a lot of what's on there. But it was too good. And I'm like, oh, and so then I kept putting these songs in this different order. This is, and I, and I was like, it fits, it fits. And sonically, if you listen to the whole record, yes, where it is now, I could not believe that it, that's the one track that most people just flip out over. Yeah, it was written by mistake, not even intended for the record. And it kept a life of its own. It is. So go figure. So I'm really, that makes my day and my weekend that yeah. you dig that song. You kind of, you know, of all the runs on the record. That's, uh, that's so cool. I like you and you like me. It comes to us so very naturally. You make me happy and I make you laugh But there's more to you and me Never tired talking with you Never run out of things we love to do Day or night, it always feels right But there's more to you and me This special feeling
like me It comes to us so very naturally You make me happy and I make you laugh But there's more to you and me More to you and me More to you and me to you and me. Tell me about the experience you had when you wrote a letter to Brian May. Oh, and his results. yeah, that was yeah, that was ninety two. Not long after Freddie had passed away. You know, back then, no internet, none of that kind of stuff. So you, you're not, you don't know what's going on. You know, unless somebody puts it out in the media on purpose. I had just finished working with Frank, the guy that I was telling you about, uh, my voice teacher. He put singing physically in my DNA. People can like my voice, hate my voice. That's fine. I don't even know if I'm a fan of my voice. I mean, I kind of like it, but I can go and sing with anybody and sing three hours worth of Beatles songs, you know, and it won't, if I can hear myself at all, my, my voice won't go. And I was just coming off that. We had done an album that came, the Royal Jive Band that came out on cassette only that year in 92. And I was just coming off of Frank's two years of working with him and I did all those vocals myself on this Royal Jive record. And I was just like, wow, I can do this? Like literally it was like I was breathing. A way I had never sung like that before as easily, you know? And it was, so it was even that much more fun. And so I'm like, well, okay. So I threw together this, an okay demo of stuff I'd done that I thought was okay over like the last five years or whatever. And sent it to Brian May because Queen, the Queen International Fan Club, that was the only way you could get a mailing address. But they always forwarded. I got to know some of the Jackie Gunn, I think was her name. God, I can still remember that. Who she ran it at the time. To that was the way you gave anything or sent anything to any of the band members, and they would get it. And because I mean, I've been, as you know, I'm a Queen freak, and I. Freddie, I grew up musically besides Beatles and everything else, but really Freddie Mercury in my ear, the early days, the rock days and stuff. I'm bootlegs the whole bit. My girlfriend at the time had, she put this, she colored the front of the envelope with these markers and this weird kind of cool, colorful pattern. I just let her do her thing kind of so it would get noticed. So we sent it and I got a letter back on Queen Stationery. It was typed. You could tell as my, my dad wrote for the New York Times his whole life and everything. So I know real typewritten pen. I grant that a, a secretary could have done it. But when you see a handwritten type letter by someone who's not a secretary, you know that it's not from a secretary, you know? And plus, if you knew the way Brian May talked, he goes, thanks for, you know, sending send the, the, uh, the letter. At the end of what he said, he goes, your voice is good. Just go for it. Don't stop, you know, good. In his, but at the beginning of it, he goes, yeah, well, I'm really not, we don't, we're not really looking for a singer right now because I'm I'm actually working on my own rec my own solo album right now and am perhaps perhaps inadvisedly doing all the vocals myself and I, so and he you know sweetheart sweetheart tone the whole note and it was like this long you know it wasn't just like a sentence and he goes your your voice is good go for it you know like demo and good luck and all this stuff and then he's you know hand signed it and stuff it was real it was a real deal and I got it. It's in a frame somewhere. I've moved a couple times. I know I have it somewhere. It's in a frame. But he was so yeah. chill. After the George Michael thing, later on, uh, before Paul Rogers ever got together with him and stuff, there were rumors going around. So I sent a letter 
not a demo, just a letter saying that, you know, I talked with Brian way back and I, I got I sent it to Stickles, their manager, who actually got back to me as well. Another very nice, definitely, you can also tell the way form letters are written too. It was so, it was just very, very cool. Very, but I, you know, when do you get two people from an organization like that at any time, but especially back in that day when it wasn't just an email thing, actually write you back. Now, we mentioned about the David Cassidy connections earlier on. So many musicians have said in recent years, certainly since he's died, how much of an influence he was on them as songwriters, as musicians. How important was, A, the music of the Partridge family, but secondly, what should David Cassidy's legacy be? Well, here's it's, it's an interesting thing. It, it's an interesting thing. The way you put that question, the beginning of that question, or when you said so many musicians have been influenced by his, meaning his music, meaning David Cassidy, that's a big statement right there. Because even though he had for the, all the stuff on the show, except for was it Lay It on the Line? Was there were there any other tracks that he wrote any part of on the records? Do you remember? I should know this. Yes, but there were. Yeah, I, I would yes. imagine there were a few. But most mm-hmm. of what the people grew up with, or these musicians and myself and whoever you know who heard these songs or grew up with these things, they were again hearing songs that he didn't write. But that shows you how no matter how much he was put into a box or no matter how much he was told how to do this or that while they were doing the recordings and the arrangements and how much word, how much uh, input he didn't really have on certain levels, you know, because you hear all the stories about how much of that was a deal or not. The fact that it was, the fact that it was him, no matter what they did to his voice, even the, the ones that they, as a matter of fact, you know what they were talking about, they say sometimes they said they need to speed him up. Because, you know, he wanted he was supposed to be 16 when the show started. And he had such a low voice. I'm convinced. I heard Brand New Me today. It's I, I just went to the bank. And in that time, I heard Brand New Me. And I'm convinced, I could be wrong about this, that that's the first track they let him sing on a record. And also because it, come on down, off your cloud. It's It sounds to me like it's his real voice and not sped up at all. And I know that there was all different versions of that and pieces of that, you know, throughout the whole Partridge thing. Without him singing it, no matter what they were doing to his voice, because the guy could hold notes, the guy could sing, you know, without him singing it and forget the teen idol thing. Like I told you, I was way more into melody, the sound of a voice and the music and the whole picture it painted for me and the excitement of the melody. And, and how it was sung. So if I didn't like a singer, whether live or on record, and then still like that kind of today, it's not snobbish, it kind of sounds like it, but if, it, if I don't, if it's not exciting to me on some level or it doesn't hit me on some level, or, I mean, I'm, all, I'm into some of the heaviest stuff on the planet. I love screaming. Nothing has to be on the note all the time. But when you're singing, it kind of helps if it is on the notes, whatever those notes might be or the style might be. And so that's, I was always super tuned to that kind of stuff. And yeah, Partridge family stuff became David Cassidy stuff is my point in the, in the eyes, ears, and nose and our perspectives out there and the people who are kids and getting turned on to music because I was listening to Beatles at that time and everything else, you know, and to me, it was always David Cassidy. 
as much as it was the Partridge family. Like I would think of yeah. them as one in the same musically as a record that I would hear. You know what I mean? The whole, everything yeah. else was kind of like, and here's an interesting thing too. It's like, <clears throat> yeah, without him delivering those songs, even like, no matter, even if it was in a song that, that was sped up or wasn't sped up or whatever, or slightly pitch corrected or not, you know, as far as the final product uh, on the records, it didn't matter because he could pull it off. There's something about his phrasing, and I know they were probably telling him here phrase it, but not, and then you can't tell somebody all that. There's something about the way he phrased the stuff. There's something about the way he sang it. You know, it's funny, and I worshipped almost all of that. The only thing that used to bug me, and still does to this day, and this is just me, I mean, every time I hear his, you, and he's, the way he says you a lot, or sings you a lot, yeah, that just used to bug me. I don't know why, because it didn't ruin anything for me. But everything else, I, you know, worshipped, worshipped, worshipped. I mean, like, the way he sings the leads on, especially when you're getting, like I said, to Up to Date and Sound Magazine, oh, man, you could have put so many other people in that spot and it never would have worked. At least not like it did. And I'm, again, I'm not talking looks, how the person looked. I'm just talking what was hitting me in the ears and, and the gut, you know, and the heart. And it was like, it was incredible. And it, it's still, I mean, why, why am I cruising around in 2022 <laughs> listening to Brand New Me? Yeah. And, and, and these, I mean, because periodically with very regularity, very much regularity, not like every week, but there's always a time when Partridge Family stuff starts hitting me. And, you know, the stuff post-Partridge. Yes. It's the irony of ironies, right? My favorite, I think, my well, the two there's two tracks, two David Cassidy post-Partridge tracks that are in my pantheon of, like, fitting right with the other tracks. One is his version of, um, I mean, I like almost all of it, don't get me wrong, but there's these two that stick out. One is his version of Tomorrow, yeah. the McCartney track from, mm -hmm. Wing, from uh, Wildlife. Wildlife. Yep. And which I think is killer and lying to myself, yep. lying to myself. When I first heard that, I was like, because I got the album when it came out. Boy, there's a David Cassidy fan. Any any of us David Cassidy fans, forget Partridge Family at that point, who would buy like those things when they first came out. That's cool. You know what I mean? It's like and that song just busted. I, you know, I had never seen the live version he did on what show was that? I just oh, saw it like a month or two ago. Yes, he did it live on the, a number We're, of shows in, in the States. Yeah, and it had more of the, the yeah. gank and the guitar. Yes. And it was a little more in your face, which is, you know, what yes. David was all about. He really, mm. but he was always about rocket. That's why I always like Lay It on the Line. Like Lay It on the Line off yes. Up to Date was always one of my favorite songs. And ironically, it was one that he had co-write on. Mm. You know, like I, like if he had gone, if they'd allowed him to go into the more rock and stuff too, I would have been like, yeah, all over it. Let's go. And he even the spoken line of doesn't somebody want to be wanted, which he was so against. Mm. It still works. It works for the teenage ear. Still pulled it off. Because he's a professional. A pro. Yeah, he's a pro. That's what he does. And that, you know, that's another thing you talk about. Yeah, you talk about pro too. The thing that I think bothers me most about someone not getting their due, you know, in the mainstream. I mean, it was funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was going through some stuff. I don't even remember what it was. 
Partridge Family stuff, David Cassidy stuff. You know, one of my long rabbit holes at night, late at night when I'm on YouTube and going through a million different things. And it's amazing, excuse me, it's amazing how many people talk about Cassidy. I mean, a lot of people love him. We know that. But it's amazing how many people say, oh, you can't act, you can't do this. I got you freaking gourd. The, the show as a kid, but more so as an adult. I mean, I could watch the freaking first three seasons of The Partridge Family now in a marathon. His comic timing, when, Dave, when, when Keith Partridge, let's say, but there's a lot of David Cassidy in this, but when Keith Partridge, you know, is, can steal the show, can steal the moment, can steal the spotlight and the sarcasm and the, the humor, but it's all so well done. I don't care what anybody says to me. No, it, it never seems like Danny Bonaducci, uh, Dave Madden, Susan Day, Shirley Jones, and especially David are not, it, it never seems like they're acting after like the first five, six episodes to me. Yeah. Never. Yeah. But it's incredible, the, the back and forth and the banter between all of them as a family and, and, and all of the super adult humor that you never get as a kid. I mean, man, and they were pulling that stuff off, which I think that might have been cool that they were like David, David's age was what it was then. He wasn't five years younger, you know, because he I think I think him and Susan Day to an extent. And they kind of got a lot of that adult humor because you have to, to even Danny Bonaducci yes. to, to deliver it the right way and, and go at it constantly. The one real constant is is David Cassidy in that group. I mean, Shirley Jones, we all know what she was and who she, you know, all her accomplishments. But in that show, once it got rolling, you know, people like to say Danny became a character that kind of stole the limelight and all this kind of stuff. I don't know about that, especially if you look, I mean, nothing against Danny. It was killer character. Me and Johnny, the guy who plays drums in That'll Be The Day, we have a Reuben Kincaid joke that runs to this day. And also, and also starring Ruben Kincaid from the credits is a t-shirt. I, I must have that. But we all know how great they all were. But I swear, if, if the person playing Keith had not been him, had not been David, I don't know if that show breathes beyond season one as the show and, his, and wh what David Cassidy was to that show. We all know the Teen Idol thing. That opened the door for all the music and the super success and all that. Th those dudes were fortunate that he ended up with that part, you know what I mean? Because mm. it saved a lot of people at the freaking network and stuff like that. But just as as the actor and comedian in that whole thing, I think, man, he was untouchable. What a great comic actor he was. You know, some of it physical, a lot of physical stuff that he did that people don't even really ever talk about, you know? And when you think about it, they all had, in all those sitcoms back then, People were doing all as like in I Dream of Genie and shows like that. They were all doing super physical stuff. In in the Partridge family, there wasn't tons of that. The closest it really got to that was him. And when he would get a little bit manic and things like and he would things would start falling in on Keith and all this and, and some of the smart ass stuff. Oh it's such great stuff. That that's that's the double-edged thing. Not only was he did he hold those musical recordings together and give it an identity, no matter who wrote the stuff. But he also gave the show, I think, its most important ingredient. Mm. And even after all these years, I still think that. It's fascinating to it's hear, hear all this because over here we didn't, well, we did get the Partridge family, but we got it a year right. after you. 
and it was only on TV for oh, that's right. what three months, and then it was taken off. Wow, came... I I kind yeah, of remember it... hearing that now. Yeah, but it didn't come back. Wow, wow, wow! Late seventy two. By which time, solo work and solo albums, you know, were selling like hotcakes and going to number one. And he was about to embark on his first concert tours in early 73. The majority of us probably never saw him as Keith Partridge. We saw him as a solo rock star. Wow, that's trippy. That is really trippy. I mean, that's a huge perspective shift. Mm. It's a huge perspective mm. shift because, like, yeah. being here, I, and that you telling, I mean, I kind of knew this, but again, I, I had heard things like this fleetingly, but I'd never really talked to to many people in the UK. By the way, there's in the UK there is a DJ, former big, you know, I mean, DJ, old school DJ, but he's still out there and still around, named Jim Stevens, who is like my UK namesake and back vice versa, <laughs> and we we became really good friends. He became a big fan of my stuff and all this stuff. And it's so cool that he's from that school, you know, the 60s, 70s, right. when he started getting into the business and going, and it's Jim Stevens. Like, people see him on Facebook thing commenting on my stuff, and they think it's me commenting on my to myself. <laughs> but it's so funny. But yeah, it's like, I have heard all these different things. I never really looked at it from that perspective. Yeah, because I, you know, here, no one knew anything. And all of a sudden, here's this TV show I'm watching on Friday nights or whatever night it was. I think it was Fridays. Yeah. Little kid, you know, my parents just digging that I'm watching the TV. This, what you were just mentioning about how it was in the UK, mm. makes this really clear, like a really clear thing I can see here. How cool it was in a way. Because again, for me, someone like me, I don't know everybody else who was sitting in the US watching the show. But for me, who was a music freaking fanatic, right? I would suck everything I could get up. But, you know, here we're talking just record. I would go buy records, records, records. My parents would let me, within reason, get whatever I wanted to get. They never worried what I was listening to. You know, I would follow. I would go through their Abbey Road and stuff like that and use pick up stuff that they had around the house. I used to get all those box sets of 50s and 60s stuff, you know, 50s especially. It was like a double whammy in a good way coming to me because I was getting, like I was saying, all the Partridge record. And then records. Plus, you know, they put them out so quickly. It was like when Elton John in his heyday would put out two freaking records a year, as a lot of bands did. And we put out like oh. 10 albums in five years or four and a half years. And it's some of his best stuff still to this day, all those records, those Elton records. It was, wow, here's this band. And we knew, it, even a little kid, and back then we knew it wasn't a real band all the way. You know, but then you learn later. But you could hear enough of David's mm. voice to know that it was him singing on this stuff. And and let's face it, I Think I Love You was the thing in this country. It was like, wham! Everybody knew about the, at least the, the name, the Partridge family, and then D- DC. But from my perspective, I was buying Beatles stuff. I was buying all the new stuff that was coming out. I mean, I'm talking obscure stuff, mainstream stuff, like later Beatle records, as we know what those were like. You know, Ram in 71, you know, the McCartney, all mm. this stuff. And to me, the Partridge Family records and songs, especially as I've mentioned to you, I think with Up to Date as an album, like the first Partridge Family album I enjoy. And it's got some great moments on it. But Up to Date, when Up to Date came out, it was like, yeah. ah! you know, it was just like, what is this? And 
that was a whole other thing than the TV. Like watching the show was like a thing you did on Saturday, Friday nights, I think it was. And it was real easy to separate the two. Like since I was a guy, I guess, I, w- I could have cared less about David Cassidy as a sex object, right? Or as a teen heartthrob. Like I, I didn't care. That literally did not matter to me. The cool thing about that is that the music was real easy for me to latch on to and, and be into, you know what I mean? As a separate mm-hmm. entity from the show and the show I just enjoyed, you know, again, I, I couldn't get all the super adult humor, but which there's a lot of, but it was good enough and written enough for kids. And since it had younger kids in it and it was music based, you know, I can still enjoy it. And, and I, and I literally almost, I guess, looked at two things as a separate thing the actual band, so to speak, and the show, you know, and over the years I became more and more and more just with, with the show, just like in awe of the cast and the, and the, the writing, you know, and how the cast all pulls it off so well. And, and it's yeah. so adult and done so well. And the records have always been a different thing. And the DC solo stuff always been a different thing to me that it's kind of weird. And I guess, yeah, you, you got hit almost just, I'm not going to say the opposite from that, but a totally different perspective of the way you you became a DC and then Partridge Family fan and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's still all affected me so hardcore and that you you had the more, in a way, the more fun route, you know? This was the real rock star. Yeah, that, see, right, exactly. Because his audience was teenage girls, a lot of people... Yep. didn't feel that yep. he had the credibility to be a rock star because oh exactly audience, is this is that unfair oh yeah oh it's totally unfair from your podcasts some with the people you know who used to work with him and stuff like that it's totally not fair i think it's a that's such a stupid phenomenon you know that something like that would have that happens you know the key part from what they've said and from what I kind of know is what happens after, you know, who's the management is, whose decisions are being, that's what's going to take it in whatever direction it goes, whatever direction that is for each person. Kind of like, you know, it's not right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's, but it's definitely not fair. Like you, you see that happen to this day. And unfortunately to this day, a lot of the people that actually are big and, and super famous uh, and are just like, because of the internet, you know, that's that's really all there is to them. Back then, before MTV, you know, in general, there there had to be some talent, like if not a lot of talent. You, the singers had to really sing. The dancers kind of had to dance. But you know, and you look at stuff like the Osmond Brothers and Donnie and the Jackson Five and Michael Jackson and all all sorts of different things back then. And the Teen Idols, a lot of them grew up and did okay all the whole way through you know what i mean it, it i'm really i really think it's the people that surround the person and who is and and you know we all know what being that famous that young does to people it skews your whole you know it doesn't i'm not saying it screws you up but it screws your whole everything up your perspective you just it's work 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 you know you're inundated by this that the other thing and it really 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 depends a lot i think and based on what I've heard, you know, and what I've seen, two friends of mine too, and how well their career has gone as other people in the business who have become stars or whatever, and even some that have become stars. There's always management, especially back then, 
and when there were, even when the labels were the thing, there's so little real labels around right now. Like my friend Alex is a lot of different ups and downs, you know, EMI forever. And then on his own, then Sony and then, and a lot of projects that are genius that are close to coming out that all of a sudden are nowhere. It's like my dad writes books, you know, you, that old thing, you get signed by the old school publishing company. And then the guy who was excited about you goes and gets sent somewhere else. And all of a sudden there's a different person out there and they don't care about you anymore. There's all, and back then that's the way it was. And so, I mean, there's still that, but back then that was really the way it was. And if the point I was going to say earlier about the fact that each star, especially if they become a kid star really quick and it engulfs them, no fault of their own, that it's so hard for them to make choices that that are going to, this will take care of this down the road. This will take care of that down the road. You'll be able to do this. You can do all these songs and it'll, a lot of times there's no way any human that's been through what they've been through. Ironically, most people think, what do you mean? That's great. But what they've been through, but it's not so much. And you hear stories all the time about how being that famous, that fast for young people is. I'm not going to say wrong because there's the right or wrong is really not such a thing in my book. You know what I mean? But the, it depends on who's around you. As, and, and it's critical, you know, because when you are that big, I would imagine when you are that big phenomenon, the people around you right then and there or super soon afterwards are going to be critical to where you go next and how you're seen and how you're perceived and how, you know, and it, and this, what happened to David happens to tons of people, you know, as far as that thing you get, but it also doesn't happen to some. And I don't think it's really a more talented or less talented thing. You know, it's where you, and it's the fickality, fickle, you know, the fick, that's a word I think I might've just made up, but the fickality of the whole business and in, in the entertainment business, not just music. You know, the same thing happens to people and kids, especially in movies and TV to this day, you know, that people get pretty damn famous early on. And then, huh? And it's through really no fault of their own. You really don't see or hear from them again in and everything in between every level in between. I mean, I think the fact that that David was fortunate, I know he was frustrated I mean, that's in all his interviews, you can, he says it and you can tell and you can know it and understand it. But he, like, did he never get to play the stuff he wanted? You know, in a way he was doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was always around. And if he decided he wanted to come back, so to speak, or whatever, you know, whatever level it was lower and then the way the business morphed over the years, he still got to do a lot and be music if he really chose to do it. And he was still, you know, even nearer towards the end, so to speak, because, you know, same old thing, none of us are ever really gone. Uh, He was still out there and he still had a ton of fans and he still had, and still does. All the people that you've told me about that you've talked with and that you know, (laughs) I mean, and, and tons of people of all ages are still into him and that show or the music only or any of it. You know what I mean? It's like, and I mean, the guys out there I'm putting, I'm doing songs that he sang first and people in their twenties are getting turned on to it. And then I'm like, well, this is where it came from 
for the person, it's definitely going to be frustrating, especially a kid. I'll put quotes around kid, but you know, a kid who yeah. all the stuff we were just, I was just talking about who you get so famous. It's, it's, it's gotta be frustrating because you just don't know how to, but how to handle it. I'm not going to say express yourself to, to, mm-hmm. to the people, right. IE express yourself to the people around you. I mean, not necessarily mm-hmm. to the world, but to the people around you and the people that can make decisions to say, okay, you know what? Just chill back for a sec. Let's let's rework this. Let's, you know what I mean? And it's so cutthroat. And it's like once some, I mean, let's put it this way. Had the guy had no talent, had he not been what, you know, what this podcast is all about and me who's giving, who's letting all this connectivity through David Cassidy and the Partridge family and the songs and the show come before I ever knew you, Sarah Hickman mentions me. Sarah's awesome. Sarah's first thing was Partridge family. We, we are, we're all talking. He's out there and he's people know him. And so how unfamous is he? If you know what I mean, but, but that's hard for, of course, him to see when you're in the middle of all that after things go along. Cause you, you know, you always want to be the, be famous on your own terms. And for David, I really, we all kind of know that that would have been playing his, his kind of stuff that would have, and being an actor too, to a different level. He totally could have done it. It's, but again, fickle, fickle, the business, you know, it's like, and after a while, how much work or BS do you want to put in too? Yes. Did, yeah. did someone like David's, cre- you know, not credit, but you got, you know, you understand I just, if it's a hassle, it's a hassle. And at some point he was probably like so burnt as well as frustrated. It's like, you know, it would become, I mean, God, all the stuff I've been dealing with for the last 10 years, little things become a hassle to me. And in his situation, can you imagine the work it would have taken to, and it could have been done with certain people around him or a different person believing in him more than maybe one did at the time it was, you know, pertinent. He, he could have easily. And he kind of did look at all the people. Ultimately he was out there playing with and meeting and the songs and music that he was out there playing. I mean, you know, he got to go, but yeah, I know what you mean. It's the, the screaming girl thing, the teen idol thing, to put quotes around all that, that is you seen as something less. And I don't yeah. I don't believe that. You mentioned earlier on about lying to myself being favorite, one of two favorite post-partridge mm-hmm. songs that he did. When he released Lying to Myself, that was an attempt to relaunch him in 1991. Right, I remember that. Yep. Was David perhaps a bit too late to the party? Because by that time, the 1980s rock scene with, with Kiss, Poison, had kind of passed by. Was he just that little bit too late? Was no, that's an of... interesting question. I hate this, but I'm going to say it. I don't hate it, but like literally hate it. Go on. MTV. MTV... I mean, video killed the radio star. That's truth, 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 truth. It's it's not. It's so ironic, but so true that that was the first vid. Every single thing that happened. I mean, I mean, video killed Queen in the U.S. The I want to break free video. I was here. I saw it. I watched it happen. You know, my favorite band. And you know, anyway. So, video and and video started creating tons and tons of untalented superstars it was what kind of video could you make what i mean a lot of them were talented but a lot of them were uh, very untalented and so i think that 
it wasn't just David. It was like Donny Osmond. Because um, he, I always put those two in that same, they came around with those albums almost not exactly the same time, but close. Both pretty good records. Both, they could both sing. They were both talented. They weren't just kid stars. You know what I mean? Like we know that, but but stuff like that. Once once the MTV generation kicked in, and just kind of kind of ruled everything. Even some of the MTV biggies eventually. Some of them. There were only really a handful that were so freaking big that until MTV started shifting away from music and music videos, that, that they were untouchable. But most people. People came and went so fast. It was always about who, like, who was going to be next. Who's the next thing we can throw up there on the vids? And visuals became more and more and more important, even up till today. You know what I mean? It's like, and so there were a lot of people like Donny Osmond, David Cassidy, a lot of bands, a lot of, um, you know, when you think about that late 80s, early 90s look, you know, a lot of the people from back in the 70s and they had the long mullets, which everyone had. And, you know, not all of them, but some of them. And then they would chant the mullet would go bye bye or the it was all there was it was confusion about what was what. Yes. Like by the time 90 came around and, and MTV had been around for eight years or whatever, or seven or there was even MTV started to get confused about what they were and what they wanted. And then the musical styles change. And then all of a sudden in 91 grunge showed up which was nothing but three chord rock and roll played loud, usually by people who weren't that good at the time, but they got a producer who pulled it all together and made a great record that they became superstars. And then it was, and then it was grand to look like that and look like you just woke up and got out of bed and wore torn clothes and things. So the styles were changing too, but see again, all this time later, and as long as David was around and Donnie, and some other people, they always had their niche. You know, you always had your place where you could go. You could, but they had a big enough niche so they could go out in the world if they really chose to and survive at that and still get the adulation, but in a different way. People who really appreciate what they're about and how good they are. Because I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of the Donny Osmond stuff uh, all through his career, too you know, of what he did after the fact. Times where you wouldn't, you'd, he'd be gone off the radar and then he'd show up again for a while and then he'd show up again or go away again for a while. And then mm. kind of like what David was was doing, you know, while David was still around. The Mormon thing, I don't know how much Donnie really lived that, but they were, you know, the, the booze kind of got Dave after a while. He was, cause he would, you could see it live. Yeah. You could, and that's just the demons, you know what I mean? And that's yeah. not, good, bad, or ugly. It's just kind of what happened and where Dave was and what he was struggling with. And and so that probably, the only reason I bring that up is because it probably took energy from him. Oh. You know what I mean? Okay. Whereas someone like Donny Osmond, yeah. at least as far as you can tell, wasn't drinking or... Do, so he just had more energy. I, I really think it's the same old thing. No matter who you are, do you really want to do that? <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, all of us. Like, do you really want to do... And, and if... if the demons have kind of caught up to you a little bit. And, but if alcohol or drugs or whatever, even just relationships that are going sour or whatever it is, yeah. it's enough to whew, take a little bit out of you. You know, that, that could have been all that Dave's issue, David's issues were, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. meaning that the reason why he didn't do more or become wider again, 
I because I have a feeling if he had survived all the way through till now, mm. and with pretty much anybody in his position, I have a feeling you would have seen a a couple of big, if not one, real large kind of rebirths, yeah. renaissances for a while in in an in interest in them and what they were really about, you know. So that that's it's a shame that that never really got to happen. Because I, I just think when I see vids of him in the later years and the interviews, I mean, while it was happening, I kind of remember thinking, man, he just seems tired, yeah. which is understandable, mm-hmm. very understandable. But that's that's sometimes that's all it takes. Forget what's causing the tired. The tired can just make you go, whatever. Yeah. And then stuff kind of just happens to yeah. you. I just wonder if in your experience, you've seen many people in mm-hmm. the business become disillusioned or used in in ways which destroy their creativity and ultimately well all the time and and ultimately they say yeah no all the time and right and the question is there's where the tired kind of thing comes in ultimately what almost everybody something happens in the business something and and they go away like almost every, I mean, you can probably look at almost every artist there's been, even the biggies, they disappear for periods of time at some point, depending on what's happening. But the the ones that, God, yeah, I've I've talked with so many people. Again, it's kind of, you and I had, had this discussion a while back, I think, quickly about, is it better to become super famous and then whatever goes down afterwards, up or down for the rest of your career, and then could be the good, the bad, the ugly so to speak, or, and, and really to never reach that plateau again. And is that going to take you all the way down from frustration? Or are you going to re is the fire going to rekindle in you and you're going to sh- brush all that stuff off your back, the past and kind of kick it again. Again, it's the tired. How much energy do you have to do that? You know, but almost everybody that I know that's achieved levels of, you know, pretty, pretty big to like almost nothing and everybody in between the business will kick you down at some point and you'll go bye-bye. Some of them really won't emerge. They'll play around here or there. They'll, you know, but it's that, and, and what hap- how happy are you afterwards? What happens? Who's in your life? You know, the, the manager type thing, the personal thing, all this. And when you were a superstar, you never know who the clingers are. You never know who the real people are when you're that big. And, and is it, is it better to just, become that big flaming ball of fire and then just burn out like they say is it better to burn out than fade away or or kind of get well that big or not that big but maybe have more energy because you didn't burn out so quickly to recover from when the biz does kind of kick you down whenever it's going to do that or weird things happen or weird people come across your path it's kind of a fascinating idea and thing but every and some of the happiest people I know ultimately are the ones that got famous, pretty famous or famous or well-known. And, but then it didn't, it didn't reach the highest, highest heights, excuse, highest heights, excuse me. Those are the ones that are, they're almost all still some of them decades and decades later creating. But they weren't with sometimes with their friends, like people they've been doing it their whole lives, other times not. But it it always involves a a, a getaway and a chill down 
because even the people that are music and do and are being nothing but that, like they became famous at that, and they are they have they chill out, they go away, they it's it's who you got around you, it's how present have you been able to stay, I believe, and and friends, real friends, who's you know, like you said, we are each other's angels. You know that song? I forget who the guy who wrote it was, but Sarah Hickman did it. Such a great version of it. That's you know sometimes, but none of it's wrong or even right it's just it's the paths that we all take i hope and i'm pretty sure i don't know this but i would guess that no matter how like tired or no matter how frustrated david got he knew he i mean you know what it's funny a couple days ago literally i was just watching i'd seen him come up on youtube a million times the david cassidy humor things it's got Mm stuff from Partridge Family, but it's also got stuff from interviews and stage stuff, a lot of the boots, a lot of this and that. Whether he was not drinking, whether he was totally normal and his normal self, he was having a lot of fun. And he was having, there was a lot of positivity going on. And he was in front of a large crowds that were, that dug the crap out of him. You know what I mean? And so on, same old thing. You always know what the truth is. You know, each one of us knows what the truth is, even if we say and think all these things that aren't to other people, to ourselves or whatever. He uh, down deep underneath it all. There's no way there's literally no way he couldn't have known that he made a mark and that he had people out there who loved him as far as as far as fans I'm talking about. And it was a large group that was not that had not gone away. You know what I mean? The, the industry might have said F you in certain ways, like it does to so many people in so many different ways. You know, you're old, you're, you know, you're, you're not relevant anymore. You're not hip. You're not. But to have all those people stick with him for his whole life after he and he was some kid on a freaking show. Yeah. When it all started, you know what I mean? Who like rock and roll. Mm. And he was like you say in the in the, the shows in, in the UK early on, I tend to forget sometimes how much of the stuff that he really loved he was doing and even those shows back then you know but later on he definitely was doing a lot of stuff that he just loved you know what i mean that from the from the time he was a kid that to me is just like he knew Mm -hmm. he knew that he made a mark and i think that ultimately underneath it all he was pretty happy ironically from what some people say i think with him it was always when it got bad for him and his from his perspective or it was in his head and it was just like frustrating frustration is the word i'm looking for i think it was really more of more frustration than true unhappiness you know what i mean because there was too much good humor in the dude later on and there was too much laughing later on and it, it when when the drinking wasn't involved it didn't seem fake it seemed like he really was still having fun and full of love and, and knew what was out there for him as well as inside. So it's, it's interesting stuff. It really is. Fascinating it is. to hear, hear your perception of it. It, re- it really oh, is. Oh, oh, thanks. Well, because it's, ultimately it's the music that will last. But did you ever see the full version of Tantrums, Tantrums and Tierras, the Elton John thing? When uh, yes. da- I think it yes, was when David first yes. met him, David Furnish, and he was following him around doing the documentary. And there's a thing where he was throwing, literally throwing a tantrum and he, and the camera comes up to Elton and he's like, he goes, 
well, it doesn't really matter, you know, because people will be listening to my music, you know, 20 years from now, 20 years after I'm gone and 20 years from now. Like, Elton looked like he was freaking nuts, the look in his eye. And he was so afraid at that moment. And he was so twisted up. And, he, you know, he's talked about this a million times about what he was like back then. It's that thing. He, Elton John, right then at that point was scared, questioning stuff, even though he was still huge. Like, do I matter? Am I going to be around when I'm dead? Are people going to be listening to the music? That's one thing that he can say. And David Cassidy can say a lot of other people can say, even I can freaking say that. And no one even have, no one knows this. <laughs> if, if you're getting it out there, but especially the big stars and the people, yeah, man, you, you never die. You literally never die energy wise. Anyway, in my book, you just move to different parts and, you know, pieces of you, but, but no, in this realm, now that music ain't going nowhere, especially with all these people that keep passing it on. So it's, yes. yeah, it's, it's incredible. But no, isn't it the, exactly the same for any famous person, be they a, an actor, a sports star, a singer, a musician? Mm -hmm. They feed off their audience and they're always afraid oh, true that. Of the day true that. when that audience won't be there uh, or they yep. won't be able to perform. Exactly. They won't be able to run out onto the football. Pitch. Exactly. And you know, what's really amazing is again, that's the thing. David was doing that as long as he could. Yeah. And as long as he was, the people were there and it, yeah, it, it just, it just, it, I don't, it's funny. I don't, I look at it in a weird way, I guess. I don't think he ever wasn't relevant, if that makes any sense. He had those people to connect with all the way until he couldn't anymore. And who, who necessarily gets that? You know, sometimes even, even connecting with 10 people, but he had, you know, decent crowds that were coming all the way to the end that appreciated him and, and got him. So that's, I think he did. And hopefully the people around him told him that and at that point and reminded him of that. I hope, you know, and that he was actually yeah. hearing that from mm. uh, someone else and other people that were seeing it and he just didn't have to worry about it. Yeah. But yeah, that's, it's, it's so trippy. That's, and that's, I guess that's one reason in a strange way, why when I do these covers, um, I do it like lovingly, like, because, because of what you said, if the music is still out there, say someone runs into one of my versions, hopefully they'll ultimately go and find the original stuff and things like that. There's yes. always the, the connectivity. Never. I could have said it earlier on, the, on what we've been recording today. You know, the connectivity of just being out there and being in the music business as such or just being music or just being a human. You know, why am I chatting with you? Why do I, excuse me, why do I have that honor? It's because Sarah Hickman and I met and became good friends. And she just said my name once. Mm -hmm. And so all of this stuff that we all love and all the love that we are, I guess, to sound really hokey. God, it's like you almost want to come on, get happy coming up behind my head, right? <laughs> it's like all of that just keeps multiplying. And that's why... I, I try never to get down anymore about that. Like I'm actually very happy with where I am as far as who knows what I, what I'm about musically or my, you know what I mean? Whatever's it all happens the way it ends up, ends up being supposed to happen. 
what would you tell your 18-year-old self if you could talk to him today? <laughs> Probably the two words, just be. Like seriously, the whole, basically the whole let it be concept and the whole be do thing. In whatever way I could do that in two sentences or something like that. Like that would, which, but see, part of me has always kind of been like that. It's like, you know, we all have that in us, the, 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 the vibe to live that way and freedom and be free. You know, we all have, it's just a question, like we said earlier, when, when, when do you get to really become aware of that? Mm. So I kind of was living that way. Like I've always been like, I never went by the book when I was Mm. coming up in the U S of a, so to speak. And now that I'm here, you know, I, I've never really done it by the book. It's just kind of been like, oh, okay. Mm. Well, if the universe guides you in a certain direction, then you will take that route. Yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And when when and when we all get to the point, when each one of us, I mean, whenever it is, when, like we said, when we get to the point where we're aware that that's happening, and then you decide to just okay, I'm going to be peace. I'm going to be music. I'm going to be embroidery. I'm going to be love. I'm going to be wisdom. I'm going to be, uh, and you decide to just be all of that. And you really, once you're able to be super aware and then immerse yourself in just the being with that kind of awareness too, literally that's where the flow comes. And you, boy, does the universe help you and bring people in and out of your whole thing. And yet you're kind of aware of it, even though at the same time, Well, the cool part is you can be aware of it whilst you're still just kind of floating, making the waves when necessary, but floating with the waves. And it's, it's incredible when living like that for two straight years, I've never lost it. Like I said, and I, and I've always wanted to get back there a hundred percent. So that's my, and where music and the connectivity can come in. That's dude, that's what it never feels better than when that's happening. You know, and it's like, and it's so cool. I still can't believe that. Thanks for asking me on here too. I can't, I, you know, I can't even tell you how cool it is and meeting you and getting to know you first of all. Uh And it's like, you know, good people, man. And it's like, but the fact that it's the, that David Cassidy and the Partridge family is, it is connections, dude. It's like, it's so cool. It's so, I guess every time I think about it, I start grinning. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's so cool. Well, that's good. It's really cool. That's good. So I would just now, tell that kid, I'd tell the dude, just yeah, kind of, don't be a jerk, you know, and and, and just kind of be aware, because because it would be hard to explain it to somebody. Because same old thing, I could try to explain that to a forty-year-old person, whether it's me or at forty or somebody else, and you know, a lot of times like drug addicts, if you're not ready to let it all hit you and sink in because we're all like that at different times. You might, you might say something, but are they going to get it? Mm. I could tell my point being, I mean, I could tell my 18 year old self, dude, just be, be cool. And they're going to be like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) You know what I mean? Cause it's it's hard to, Mm. yeah. As far as a career, I would just say, be whatever it is, whatever you be and love. And you can just let things flow from there. Make sure it's that you know other, otherwise what's the point really yeah. you know and and yeah it's interesting <laughs> that sound advice jim hmm. sound advice 
you've come a long way on your journey. Well, we that thank you, thank you. We all have, yeah, we all have. It's it's like, and then, you know what's really cool is the ability for other people to see how far other people have come on that journey. Yeah. To me, we are everything without other people and nothing without other people. You know, we're all from, I still am, I still know, actually, we're all just individuations of, from the same thing. You know, each one of us that's walking around down here, all individuations from the same thing. And yes, we got to be strong on our own, but we still at the same time can, can accomplish nothing without everybody else. And meaning those people that are going to come in and out with, with, it just, it's impossible. And it's so cool to see who those people become or who become those people, I should say, over time. It's just like you, you, you know, the way you, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know you two days ago. You know, not you, Louise, but you, and then all of a sudden there's this person in, and some of them come and it reappear from after 25 years. That's yeah. even weirder. You know, people, there is a, there is a book I would highly recommend. It's by Neil Donald Walsh, the guy who did the conversations with God books. I could talk about that whole thing and that story, and that sort of thing, but it's called The Mother of Invention. And it's written about a real person and it's written in reverse chronologically. But I actually, when I was super, super no money about seven years ago or whatever, I actually went to a Barnes and Noble every day to finish the book, to read it in the store. And it's really? called The Mother Invention. It's about this woman who is a real person. And it's written in reverse, like a detective story, a detective novel, but in reverse. And what it, it what the point of the book is, and it and it breaks in, in in italics to tell to to make it make us aware of how every single freaking one of our lives is like a quilt and a patchwork. And people come in and out of it and in and out of it. You don't know how they're going to necessarily make it real. You know, your patchwork real. Some of them you might meet for three days. Some of them 25 years ago, 30 years ago, will come in 30 years later and make this big impact again and change the course and write that other piece of your quilt, you know, or knit that other piece of your quilt. And it's, it's the greatest thing. It's, it's fascinating who comes into your life when and leaves your life when, but what they do for you. You know, it's both while they're there and while they're not there. It's just incredible stuff. Oh my God, it's yeah. incredible. So I'm getting all like, ah, goo goo gaga, just thinking about it. That's and kudos to you, thing. by the way, for that book. Oh, it's. That book is like hardcore in a good way. It's so cool. That's awesome. Congrats, congrats. When I saw the thing online, I, I, I was like, man, she did this. Like, you did it right. The cool thing is that it's very killer visually. Yes. Which will can suck anybody in. There's nothing better that I could have done tonight. It's just so fun. It flew by. I mean, flew by. So thanks. We started on Saturday night and now it's Sunday morning. Now it's Sunday. Yeah, right on. Good, good, good. No, it was, that's because it was super fun. It you was. know what I mean? It's like just very, very fun. So, I mean, again, you're the best, but thank you for having me on and, you know, let me come and talk about stuff, you know, and, and mostly have just fun, 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 fun. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Well, thank you for giving up your time. 
I, I knew that once we started, you know, I pretty much put everything on hold because it was going to be a while because I knew <laughs> we would have so much fun. We shall be in touch. We'll talk oh, again. right on. You know it. I've got, I've got, I'll have some info for you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like I said, I'm a fan of the show as much as Partridge Family and David Cassidy. But it's true. So, I mean, just as a listener, you know, someone who do digs the people that, that have been here and you're so good at it and everything. So great job. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Bless you. Stay groovy, Jim. Oh, you too. Groovy. Thanks, my dear. <laughs> you too. Oh, it's the only way to go, you know, be do and be groovy, right? I send love and grooviness your way and everyone on your end that's around family, the whole bit, same to them. Thanks very much. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you, my dear. Have a fab night and a morning, and I'll talk with you soon. Talk to you soon. Will there come a day when you and I can say we can finally see each other? Will there come a time when we can find the time to reach out for one another We've been traveling in circles Such a long, long time Trying to say hello Time. We can find the time. We can find.
reach out for one another I'll meet you halfway That's better than no way I'll meet you halfway That's better than no way I'll meet you was Jim and his cover of Army to Halfway. I'd like to thank my friend Jim for his time and reflections and observations and thank you for downloading this podcast. All episodes dating back to August 2020 can also be downloaded and found on whichever platform you get your podcasts from. So until we connect again, take care.